Uh, I want to start by a couple announcements um, uh, this morning. Just uh, if you have a chance, you can pull out your bulletin. And um, I'm going to have to grab a pad of paper to draw on at some point just because it's Art Sunday. Uh, and I've got to show you how good I can draw. <laughs> uh, doodle. Um, the Dave Ramsey class, we forgot to mention it last week, but it's coming up real soon. The Dave Ramsey class is kind of a, a whole financial kind of course uh, that we're really just trying to put before you so that holistically we can continue kind of the conversation on um, finances and money and those kinds of things. And that starts, thanks man, there's two classes that start. One uh, starts kind of the Sunday morning that we go to two services, and then I think there's another one that starts midweek, kind of right after that. And we would love for you to sign up for that. We'd love for you to think about it. We'd love for you to talk to somebody that's done it before. Uh, We'd just love to make that available to you. And so if you can, we'll get you information if you just write Dave Ramsey on your connection card and kind of turn that in. Uh, We will kind of tell you when it is, where it is, how to go about signing up for it and try and make that a fit for you. So if, if you're interested in the Dave Ramsey class at all, uh, just write that on there. Uh, really appreciate that you guys have had the patience um, with us talking about money the last month or so. I kind of read something this week that was funny. It said that Christians are really good at giving God credit, just not cash. Uh, and I just kind of thought that was funny. And But we've, we've kind of been able to, to have this conversation and and it's been interesting. It's led into a lot of dialogue midweek with different individuals. And one of my friends said this, and, and it's been something that's just been banging around in my head. And he said, uh, when we talk about money with people, no one's going to be grateful for it in the moment. But a million years from now, everybody will be glad you talked about it. And it's just this really intriguing thought of someday when we're kind of removed from all this and and we're looking back at life and we're looking back at opportunities that we've had, uh, we'll be really glad for the difficult conversations that challenged us to do things that we wouldn't have done maybe otherwise. Um, Because I think when we're in heaven and we look back, we'll have, I think all of us will have wanted to be a lot more generous. And so it's kind of an interesting thought. So that's just my way of saying, you might hate me now, but a million years from now, I'm gonna be really popular. Uh, it's just a delayed effect, so it'll catch up. Uh, okay, a couple, here's kind of the big thing that we need to talk about, and then we'll kind of get into this morning, but we're going to two services. Do you guys know when? April 3rd. April 3rd. We're going to two services on April 3rd. Uh, there's been a couple people, sorry, our fault, that showed up last week thinking we already switched to two services and all that. So as staff, we start talking about things so much that we forget, like, actually telling you when we're going to two services. So this morning, kind of our whole goal is to make sure you knew when. Uh, so we're going to two services. When is that? Two weeks. So it's not next Sunday. We've got uh, Dr. Gary uh, Brashears from Western Seminary uh, who co-wrote a Bible doctrine book that you might have seen with uh, Mark Driscoll. Phenomenal book, by the way. He's going to be guest speaking next week. Kind of excited about that. Uh, anyone know Ken Hutcherson? Ever heard of Ken Hutcherson? Uh, he's coming in May. Pretty excited about that. But uh, has nothing to do with anything because May is a little ways off. The, but after Gary Brashear's next week, the following week, April 3rd, we're going to two services. Now here's the thing about that. Uh, the thing about two services, let me kind of draw it for you. We're, as a church, too big for one service but we're too small for two services. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it's kind of like when you go from the littler house where you kind of had all this excess money every month. This isn't about money, so you guys can relax. But, but you know what I'm talking I'm using an analogy here, so, so don't think it's about money. It, the, uh, but you can make the rent there, but then you go to the bigger house, and you're like, man, I could do that, but this is like a big step. That's hard. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's like kind of trying to go to a bigger engine, but the same amount of oil. You know, it's like you kind of have to 
you had this one was fine, but then when you go to this bigger thing, it's like this this isn't enough oil anymore. Uh, and what it is is other churches that have buildings and, and the like. I was meeting with Ken Johnson this week from Westside, and we were talking about a bunch of different things. And I was telling him about going to two services, and and he was just like, "Oh boy, room dynamics. Yeah, it's killer." And and he was kind of saying when they do it, and this is typical of churches when you have a building, you, you move the chairs further apart and you pull like four rows from the back so that you kind of decrease the number of seats so that when you go to two services, it spreads better. Does that make sense? Okay, we can't do that. Um, Summit, we asked. They, they weren't cool with that. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. But, so we have 600-something seats here. When we go to two services, we still have 600 seats per service. And so all of a sudden it can go from feeling really full and really like everybody's worshiping and, and kind of okay because you can pass the offering bucket without having to walk halfway across an aisle to splitting that in half. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's a real easy way to fix this. We need to grow by 100 people on April 3rd. Okay, I've never preached church growth. I've never twisted. Anyone raise their arm if I've ever said, you've got to invite your neighbor to church. You know, that's another one of my flaws. I sh- probably should have been telling you that. It slipped my mind. I, but I've never manipulated you to say, you've got to bring your neighbor, you've got to preach to the guy down the hall or at work, or you've got to tell someone, oh, let's go to breakfast on Sunday, and then, oh, whoops, we've got to go to church first. You know, I, I've, never, I've never preached church growth. Has anyone ever heard me preach church growth? Okay. So here's the thing. I care about church health. And there's a very real thing when we go to two services, if everything gets awkward, that that just affects church health. So I'm asking you to do me a favor that we have an opportunity here as a church to do something that maybe has slipped our minds for a while, but it's kind of one of the things we're supposed to be about, witnesses for Christ that when we're when we're in church we invite people to church it's what the New Testament did in the book Acts it's called come and see they would they would all go to their friends and say hey you got to come and check this out it's just how it always worked with church so we haven't talked about a lot but but I'm going to ask you to do it on April 3rd or the first couple weeks of April just everybody here everyone brings someone is that fair enough to ask and and it's not like ooh, we want a bigger church, we want this. It's just, we got to make this thing work. And if we all kind of do that and embrace that, then things are kind of normal and we can kind of go from here to here without this real awkward lag stage. Um, Whenever you do anything in life, there's what's called the implementation gap. Have you ever heard that phrase? So you go to move, right? And and you want to get here and you're here. Well, you know the move kind of, you go backwards before you ever go forwards. You know what I'm talking about? Um, like, you know, if you have to fire employees to, like, get to a better staff, it's nothing to do with um, Antioch. But you, you go backwards, like a wrongful termination lawsuit, I don't know, but before you go forwards. And so this, it's called the implementation gap. Now, how do you, it's like when you're driving a car and all of a sudden you hit sand or something like that, or riding a bike and you hit sand and it just grabs you. Um, how do you get through that? Yeah, you just plow through it, right? So, so, you know, the staff can stress all day long, and we can think of all sorts of elaborate ways to spend a lot of money. Um, but there's 500 people in this church, and 70% of the people that come to a church come because of a family or friend who invites them. 70%. So there's a real easy way to plow through this thing and go into two services in a position of health, and that's simply that 500 people that go to this church that are part of this community, we all just go, okay, this is really easy. Just bring somebody. I'm going to bring someone. You bring someone. We all bring somebody. Wow, isn't this fun? Um, so I'm just kind of not trying to sneak it in on you. I'm just trying to put it right, down, you know, right there in front of you. Um, kind of ask that, that you'd bring somebody to church starting in April. Does that sound fair? Do you understand the logic? Um, if you're brand new, you're like, oh boy, this guy just wants to grow a big church. We've been here four and a half years, and I've never really said straight to you that I'm asking you to bring somebody. So um, this isn't about that at all. It's just about trying to make a transition 
we're too big for one service, it's too small for two, and, and we just need your help. Um, if you can, as well, we need uh, volunteers. It's kind of a cool thing when we open up a bunch more seats. There's, there's room for people. There's also volunteers that literally every week volunteer and never get to come to services. And so it's kind of cool now that people can volunteer and also come to a service. Or people that volunteer one Sunday a month can now volunteer two or three Sundays a month and still come to the service. So it's kind of a really cool thing that way. So if you want to help more or if you want to start helping, we'd just love for you to kind of write that on a connection card. Later in the service, when the offering bucket comes along, you can put it in there. And we'd love to just um, fold you into making this thing happen on Sunday mornings. It really takes like a small army to kind of make this happen. It's kind of a, a fun and a cool thing. Um, sound fair? Okay, so today's Art Sunday, um, which is interesting. Um, Connie over here, everybody, Connie doesn't want you to recognize her, so everybody recognize Connie. Uh, Connie is, does, does all the stuff that may, well, it's still up there. Um, she does all the stuff that makes Antioch look pretty. Um, it's not like my stuff, but uh, she's the art director, graphic artist, all of that kind of stuff. So everything that looks pretty, Connie somehow touches. And, and so uh, Connie is a phenomenal artist, a gifted artist. She's an award-winning artist. If you go to Barnes & Noble, you can see a lot of her book covers on, on just uh, New York Times best-selling kind of books and all that kind of stuff. Um, so really accomplished that way and works part-time at the church. And so this is something we've done in the past, Art Sunday. We're kind of doing it again. And so the, the goal here is we really want to affirm creative gifts. Now, that doesn't mean everybody that's a professional. It means stay-at-home moms. It means guys that sell mortgages. It, it means all these different things. But it's people that God has blessed with creative ability, and they're, they're kind of in the closet as artists. And we get to kind of celebrate that on a Sunday. So after church, there's this art sale from art all throughout the community that you get to buy, like put in your house, and it's kind of a really cool bonding experience that way. Um, now, Art Sunday is an opportunity for self-absorbed people to go, wow, I really feel like I don't have any talent. Okay, that's not what this is really aimed at. Uh, what it's aimed at is for us to look at our brothers and sisters who have talent that God has given them and to celebrate that. Does that make sense? So it's really important to Connie I talk about art this morning. Um, so I have to talk about art. Well, we're going to two services in a couple weeks, and it's a really defining moment in the life of this church. So I really need to talk about church this morning. <laughs> so uh, this morning we're going to talk about the church as art. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, and to kind of frame it a little bit, talking about art and just where we're going with that, I want to bring out um, my good friend Micah. And Micah is going to share uh, a, a little thing he wrote, a poem, spoken word, on this idea of creation, this idea of art, and what goes on kind of with that. So if Micah's here, we'll, we'll bring out Micah. I am an artist, creating beauty from pain of heart to the glory of God. This gift is divine, and I'd rather die than sell my soul to critics, in need of no professional to tell me I'm broken. I know it, believe it, and see invisible things. These visions are not hoaxes, but reflections of me. My creations become cages for these ghosts in hopes to prove myself sane. It never works, but the voices in my head assure me I'm not crazed. Dismissing the disdain of the masses, I offer my work solely to my master. Seeking no approval or applause, my art stands naked and unshamed of its flaws, knowing they are one and the same with its strengths. People gawk at my provocative display. Blushing yet delighted as whispers turn to praise. Grateful that I have felt their pain and painted their feelings. Finally, someone said what we were all thinking. And now they're all saying that I am an artist. And they are connoisseurs of my work. 
what I once did for free is now worth more than myself. And I can't help but believe what everyone tells me. I am amazing. And starving to death. Their compliments became my bread, and I don't know if I will live through this famine. So now I'm determined to prove that I am no fluke in competition with my own skill, and I've never faced a more strong-willed opponent than me. But there's tragedy in warring against oneself, for every victory is also defeat. It seems I have lost my way. Forgot what I create in the first place. Forgot not to care about what they say or how much they pay, and nowadays it doesn't matter how much I pray the heavens remain. Silent. And I am alone. So I return to the only thing I know. I am an artist, creating beauty from pain of heart to the glory of God. I want to talk about art a little bit. I think it's one of the most misunderstood things out there. Um, art is subject to interpretation to some degree, and there's a lot of uh, confusion on the boundaries and the borders and the definitions of, of art. Engineering is a lot more precise, isn't it? Um, you either make an engine that, that blows up or one that functions well. It's... it's there's no gray area and there's no subjectivity. It's just all objective. And, and I think with art, it's, it's a really interesting thing. So I want to make a couple distinctions here. And I want to do it bringing it back to the idea of God as an artist. Because essentially an artist is someone who creates. Now in uh, grad school, we used to debate this all the time. My, my degree was in philosophy. And there's actually a discipline uh, called aesthetics, which deals with uh, the idea from a philosophical standpoint of beauty. It's, it's what is beauty and how would we define it and how would we categorize it, what distinctions would we make. Um, and so it was always a conversation that way. Antioch has four words that from the beginning we kind of camped on and one of them is beauty. Truth, beauty, meaning and adventure. When we talk about art, when we talk about creation, there's an element of aesthetics. There's an element of representing the world or creating something that's representative in a certain way um, that is beautiful. There's harmony there. There's a, a magic there. There's a quality there that makes it beautiful. It's aesthetic. The interesting thing with art that I've always talked about is how when you look out in nature there's got to be a million different hues of color like I mean there's so many colors when you go out in the woods and just look especially in the spring with flowers and nobody has ever gone man it just clashes today today's not a good day you know you that doesn't go with this it's not a good ensemble I mean there's can you imagine trying to dress yourself in even like, you know, a fraction of the amount of colors and have it work. So someone was telling me recently that a designer's trick, an interior decorator's trick is to use the colors of nature. And it's for that same reason that if you kind of go into that palette and use the colors of nature, you're not going to clash as much and you can kind of, it's a trick where you can get more things going and have it all blend. And there's something about that that's beautiful. We could go on a little bit more with that and go into the graphic arts and, and balance and, and symmetry and, and those kinds of things. But there's this idea of reflecting something beautiful. Now, art for a long time camped there. It camped there. And a big part of it was, I mean, just to absolutely overgeneralize it, but when we didn't have cameras, the rich would be patron of the arts and they would give money, a lot of the money that they would give would be, would be for portrait art. So they didn't have pictures, they couldn't do like a Facebook picture, you know, and on an iPhone. And so they would hire the best artists to render their likeness accurately and that was, 
That was what paid for art. The other thing, you want to know what the, the next biggest thing was that, that really paid for art? Anybody? Yeah, Bible stories. So illustrations of Bible stories. So in a pre-literate society, you would, uh, not pre-literate, but uh, largely illiterate, okay, society, they would render Bible stories, especially from the Old Testament, into works of art. And it would tell the story in this amazing kind of art form. Rembrandt, a lot of his paintings are biblical stories. And so you have the money that supports the arts, again, kind of representing something really well in an objective kind of way. Does that make sense? And so aesthetics and the idea of harmony and symmetry and beauty that way, mapping on to what we see with our eyes and conveying that well was what really kind of dominated the arts. And then in the middle of the 1800s, we get the camera. And the camera begins to slowly change things. And then you get the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists and then modern art, full-blown modern art. And then you get a generation of people who have this kind of grow up in their lifetime and they react against it, which is kind of our tendency because it's foreign and it's not safe and it's, it's, it's abstract rather than representative. And we begin to fight against it and say that's not art because it doesn't reflect reality and where's the, the symmetry that I'm used to and where's the likeness and resembling of the world that I'm used to and, and they react against that. And, but the truth is, what happened was art shifted away from, from what kind of undergirded it and the camera begins to take over representing likeness and art moves to a different place that it always had to it. And this is what we've got to realize is art has always been evocative. It's always been something that brings the emotions out. St. Augustine didn't like musical instruments because he felt like it would play to people's emotions and move them through their emotions. And he didn't want that. He wanted to hit the reason of them and kind of their, their minds. And so, you know, downplayed this side of it, the passions that are uncontrollable and wild. And, and you look back at the Psalms and, and Scripture and that they're too, set to... to musical instruments, and you get this language of deep, raw, felt reality and emotions, and you begin to realize that art has always had an evocative side to it, that it evokes the emotions. And so what happens when the camera comes about and art goes on a journey and goes to different places was that art began to really explore what can we do with, with color and shapes and different mediums and crossing mediums um, and doing mixed media art. What can we do with new technologies that will communicate something either that I'm feeling or will evoke something in the audience? Now, an artist can try and evoke something that we might not like or try and express an emotion that we don't want him to express or her to express. But the point is, is um, at, that, at that level, you don't like what it evokes. You don't like that emotion. You don't like that truth. You don't like that reality, whatever it is. But it's still art. And it's art that's playing on this side of the spectrum, evoking emotions, does that make sense? And so we have these two sides and we still see a sunset and we go, it has both an amazing aesthetic quality to it, yet it also evokes just these, the, the, how sublime it is, evokes something in me. It makes me want to sit there and not have someone bang the tambourines or play all these, yeah. there's all these toys my kids have now that make these god-awful noises. And, and I mean, it's just so dissonant and like my stress levels shoot through the roof in like literally seconds. Um, you would never think that belongs when you're watching a sunset. You know, I need to be able to sit here and enjoy this and savor this. There is art happening and I have to be able to, to devote myself to this and be able to respond in a commensurate fashion. We, we understand that there's something going on there and it's on both sides of the spectrum. 
Does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking with me? Nobody? Really? Okay. Somebody. Okay. So when God creates, at the beginning and in creating the whole thing, when God creates, how does he create? And it's a complexity that we have to, to, to get at. Because if we don't get at the complexity of art and the complexity of what's in the artist's mind when he's creating, then talking about God as an artist or God as a creator becomes one of those weird things that you might hear in church, you might hear from someone, and you're just kind of like, sure, I'll grant you that, whatever, I don't know. But it just doesn't connect in any meaningful fashion, and we lop it off and kind of move on. It's like when somebody, uh, someone Facebooked, a writer friend of mine Facebooked a little writing sample that someone had sent him where they like literally mixed five metaphors all in two sentences. It was hilarious. And when you mix metaphors, you know what I mean by mixing metaphors? It's like, you know, you're talking about a rose and then all of a sudden you're talking about carpentry and then you're talking about like a garbage dump and then you're talking about, and it's all like in one thought and you're just like, man, that's just, it's too, it doesn't make sense. And your mind shuts down and you move on. When we talk about God as a creator or God as an artist and we don't do it in a way that we can get at the depths of it and understand it, we kind of like, shut down and move on. So what I want to do is kind of say this. God creates both on the aesthetic side and he he does it on the evocative side. He also creates dynamically and passively in his art. Um, He creates dynamic art and passive art. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is simply this. When God, when any artist creates on a medium where they control all the variables and the artwork is finished when they are finished with it, it's a passive piece. It's fixed. It's done. It's complete. Okay? We might have responses to that, but the art itself is a fixed thing once it's complete. Dynamic art, so this is fixed art. When, when Connie is done with this piece, the piece itself is done. Do you understand what I mean by fixed that way? She's controlled the variables, she's sealed it, and, and now it is complete. Dynamic art, or, or uh, creating art that is dynamic, would be like somebody who scores a soundtrack to an amazing epic movie assembles an orchestra to play the score and then is going to lead that orchestra and in, in, is going to conduct that orchestra. If you imagine like a orchestra, full-on orchestra. Now there's this music that's been created. This, this conductor is going to conduct this orchestra. They're all here assembled. But the art form is dynamic in the sense that the one who's creating still needs the participation of others. Do you understand the distinction? This artist who's creating is not able to control all the variables. He's not able to control what kind of mood that that cellist is in or whether the cellist is sick or not or whether the cellist has a bad attitude or not. He's not able to control all the variables. He's creating and assembling, but participation is required for the final art form to be established. This is the, the biggest thing that is missed when people will come to me, people that have strong doubts about God and about Christianity. And, and the question is, how come God didn't create And you can fill in the blank, right? A world where there is no pain. And what you're basically asking is, as an artist, how come God didn't create a world where the end result was fixed so that there would always be good and never any bad? Do you understand that? 
I mean, really grab hold of that. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you felt that? When Satan goes to God, the accuser goes to God in the book of Job, he says, this, this guy, Job, praises you, God, because everything's good in his life. That's not real praise, God. That's not real worship. He's not really choosing to worship you because everything is so perfect that it's just an easy, fun thing to also add worship of you on top of that. If he didn't have everything so perfect, would he still worship you? That's, that's kind of the, the background of the book of Job. And God allows the accuser to go and... Um, he allows the circumstances to change and he allows it all to kind of go this way. And the emotion of Job that he wants to bring before God is, is one of why. And, and it's this unbelievably fascinating thing that's going on. And it's a competition of values. It's a competition of values. When we come to God with suffering, we tend to come to God with the chief concern or the chief value, the highest value, the most important thing in our world being that there should be no suffering and there should be no pain. When God comes to suffering... He doesn't like suffering. He's not a masochist. But he comes to it like a coach in the middle of a, a practice where players have been running wind sprints or training really hard. And he comes to it and he understands the pain and he understands the difficulty and he understands the emotion. But God comes as somebody who always has a higher value. Mainly, our participation in his creation. When God created the world, this art, this piece of art, this creation that he, that he created, he created it not as a fixed reality, he created it as a dynamic reality because he realized the greatest thing that could happen in this particular art thing, the greatest glory, the greatest relationship was by giving us the freedom to join in and participate in making this thing glorious. That it becomes a group kind of project. That it becomes something that we're all involved in and it's not passive and it's not mindless and it's not mechanical, but that we have the option of joining God in bringing about the full glory of his creation. And God is always looking at it and saying, by choosing despite circumstances, to join me in what I am doing in this world and reconciling it to myself and manifesting love and choosing higher things over lower things and choosing spiritual things over material things and choosing to have faith despite difficult circumstances and basically choosing those things, you're creating something so much better than, than mechanically accepting life from God as long as everything's going our way. And we become witnesses to this relationship with God. We become witnesses to his kingdom and his purposes and his desires for a community that would live in a certain kind of way with justice um, and beauty and virtue. And so when we come to God with pain, God cares about the pain, but he realizes his plan requires a higher value. Namely, that even in bad circumstances, we would still trust him and we would still participate and join. That our joining with him would be a chosen reality. That our joining with him would be an act of obedience and not just determined by circumstances. All the variables are fixed, so we mechanically respond, but we never choose. 
we never trust. So when people ask me, how come God didn't create it? a world, blankety, blank, 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 I just go, you don't understand art. And you don't understand the difference between passive pieces of art and dynamic pieces of art. And you don't understand how we all intuitively and instinctively understand that this world with people with choice and free will and faith and trust and and virtue and love, that this is a better creation than if we were all mechanical. And if we understand that, then we can wrestle with the deeper themes of faith like the Psalms do. Wrestle with the emotions and the suffering, but still come back at the end to going, God, you're sovereign over this. And I know at the end of the day, you're going to establish me and us and that your plans are good and fixed. And the psalmist has this amazing way of recognizing the felt quality of life, but then putting it all back to God as being over the the architect of this, the creator of this, and really trusting that God as the creator has good in mind. Romans. We all claim that for our circumstances, don't we? Romans, when it says uh, all things work for good. Romans, what, 8.28? All things work for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And we go, we, 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 we grind on that, don't we? I don't, man, it's not all working good. I didn't get that job. I prayed that my house would be spared and I still lost my house. I prayed that my relationship or my marriage would, would survive and it didn't survive. And I mean, those are tsunamis of the soul tsunamis to the soul. I mean, those are things that just rock us, right? Real things. And we go, how can I take Romans 8, 28 and, and believe that when I have such pain in my life? And when we read the Psalms and then we go back to Romans 8, 28 and say, God, think, God works all things for good to those who have been called according to his purposes, we begin to realize the real thrust of this language, and when you read the book of Romans, especially chapter 9, which comes next, and it talks about the sovereignty of God, and God is a, an artist, like a potter with the clay, we begin to realize that the good that's being talked about in Romans 8.28 is not that every day will be perfect, and the next day will be more perfect, the next day will be more perfect, or that every prayer will be answered, but that God is an architect, he's an artist, he's someone who's creating, and that his purposes, and us in relationship to these purposes, as participants in this, will work for good art. It'll work for good art. The purposes he has that we're joining into despite our circumstances, when we're trusting him, that that story that he's writing is a good story. And it'll work for good. And we join in despite the circumstances, trusting that all things will work for good. A little bit? Okay. So here's where I want to go with this. I want to talk about church for a second. I want to stay in the book of Romans, so turn to Romans 12 with me if you can. Now, Romans is a fascinating book. It's literally probably the most doctrinally dense book of the Bible. Paul is slinging it. He's just, he's just slinging it. Like, look, I want you to understand the ideas very clearly. So he's breaking it down into tight doctrine, saying this is truth. This is what has been going on. This is what's going on with God. This is what God is doing. And he's breaking down these doctrines. And you get 12 chapters into this book, and you see this fascinating word, the first word of chapter 12. And it's this, it's 
therefore. Now, it's really interesting when, uh, when you're taught how to read the Bible, one of the little like, games you're taught is when you see a therefore, you ask, why is that therefore? Or what is that therefore? Because therefore is a hinge word. And it means that something was previously said that, that now affects what's going to be said next. And whenever you go, blah, 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 therefore, you've laid the groundwork, right? And now you're making an assertion based on the groundwork. So whenever you see therefore, you ask, why is that therefore? And you got 12 chapters into this book, and Paul drops a therefore, and it has nothing to do with, like, the previous paragraph. It has to do with the whole book up until this point. It's crazy stuff. It's like, man, I've just been long-winded with some hardcore theology. Therefore. And what he's basically saying is God is sovereign. God is an artist who chooses what he's doing with us and with this plan that he's over, that there's a providence and a sight. He's, he is orchestrating things. And there's grace involved and there's love involved and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither heights nor depths nor powers nor principalities. It's this amazing thing and all things will work for good and it's this testament to grace that God has grace and God is inviting us into this story. And because we have grace, he's saying, don't go and sin more. Like if you have a bunch of mulligans, don't play bad golf just because you have a bunch of mulligans. I mean, just how ridiculous, have you ever, maybe if you haven't played golf, you don't understand how ridiculous that is. But you, you try to play good when you're playing golf, right? And, and when you're bad, you like have these things called mulligans, which is like, well, that, that's a do-over. You know, and, and you start with one and you're like, well, that one wasn't really a do-over because it was off of the tee. I, you know, I was just warming up my driver. You know, and, and you, you start claiming more and more mulligans because you're trying to like stay out of the rough because if you're in the rough, you're just you're screwed. And then it becomes not fun. You're throwing clubs. You're bending them around trees. Your Christian friends are like freaked out. If you're a pastor, they're like, whoa, I'm not going to this church anymore. And so you don't want that. You don't enjoy playing bad golf. You want mulligans, right? But just because you have mulligans, nobody's going to play bad golf on purpose. Do you understand that? And Paul is going, you got mulligans. God has got grace for you. He's trying to bring you into what he's doing and he's a good God and he knows what's going on and he's orchestrating this. And there is grace, there's forgiveness, there's mulligans. But just because you have mulligans, don't go and sin more. That's illogical. Get excited about the fact that you don't have to worry about mess ups. You can keep trying and enjoy your golf game and, and you know, keep trying to grow and improve. Why? Because the goal is still for you to participate in what God is doing. It's to trust him. And it's to be virtuous. And to be loving. It's God's grace and our desire to be folded in with God and obedient to God and, and delighting and walking alongside God, doing what God is doing and, and only doing the things that God would have, have pleasure of. Not screeching our instrument just because it feels good. But being in harmony with God. That whole idea, Paul's talking about grace and obedience and God's sovereignty. And now he says, therefore, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Don't play your own tune. Don't go your own direction. Be a part of what God is orchestrating. You take your whole life and you make it his. Now, sacrifice in the Old Testament was I'm taking something of value and making it God's, and it's going to show my devotion. And Paul is saying, look, I want you to put yourself on the altar. And, and instead of being consumed by the flames, like because the altar was something where there's a fire, I mean, literally something burnt. Paul's like, no, this is a metaphor. Paul's, you know, he's like, get me now. I'm saying put yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice. 
You're not like committing a human sacrifice and dying. You're, you're offering and surrendering your life to God and you're walking off the altar on the backside, but as someone who belongs to God. It's, it's saying you're all in. And Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on, and, and this is where it gets to the church. So in Romans chapter 12, he now talks about gifts. And he says this, just as, and this is verse 4, Romans chapter, four, uh, chapter 12, verse 4. You're going to become God's. You're turning yourself over to God. You're surrendering yourself to what God's doing. And just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We're in this together. It's a family. It's a community. And we have different gifts according to the grace given us. We each have a different instrument in God's orchestra. He, he hands us all a different instrument to play. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. Paul goes on and continues the argument. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. Now, if you can hear Paul's voice, he's getting a little more worked up. He's, he's equating two things. If you can teach, teach. If you can serve, serve. You know, he's, he's doing it. Now he gets worked up because he doesn't just say, if you have this, do this. He starts to say, if you have this, do this the best you can. Listen to this. If it is to encourage, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, why then let him do it cheerfully. You were given an instrument and you're going to play in the orchestra. You get to play in the orchestra. No matter how much you have to grow and learn, God is involving you in his creation. And, and, if, and if you got the oboe, then play the oboe well. And if you got the flute, play the flute well. And if, and if you're going to serve, don't just serve, serve well. Paul is bringing this about and he's just talking about how this works and what he's beginning to do is give us a picture of the church. The church is something God created. It's artwork. It's dynamic art. The church only functions in a really artistic way when all of the members of the church perform. When all of the members of the church are involved and do their best. They're not just here. They do their best. And when it works right, it works magically. And we sometimes miss this. And we think the church is this. And we think the church is Ken preaching. Or Justin leading worship. Or Grace singing better than Justin. I'm just kidding. Sky girl, it can't be better. It's different. But <laughs> listen to me now. I, I was with, by the way, there's a, real, there's a lot of really cool things going on. Um, there's too many cool things that we can't tell all of them. And we're not trying to keep secrets. It's just too many cool things going on. One of the cool things is we're part of a church planting network now with Imago Day and about, Imago Days in Portland and about six other church plants that's going to kind of create, if you've heard of Acts 29, Rick McKinley at Imago Day was a founding member of that. And we're kind of in this network of beginning to create a church planting network. Um, so Antioch's not a lone ranger. We've got this family of churches that we're linked up with that's committed to multiplying itself. Because church isn't a social club just for us. Families multiply. And churches are supposed to multiply. But there's some really cool things happening this way. So anyways, I was over at a meeting in Portland with these guys. And uh, one of the pastors was talking about a frustration he had. And he's like, you know, his staff would get up and kind of do a, a halfway job at announcements or a halfway job or whatever. And it would put all the pressure on him to just try and hit it out of the park when he was preaching. And they just didn't care that much because it, they thought it didn't matter. He'll just knock it out of the park and everyone will be happy and whatever. And he got, this pastor got really frustrated with this. So when the, the guy was telling the story, it's hilarious by the way, he, the phrase they kept saying was, um, to him was, 
it doesn't suck that bad. Okay? So he started being facetious, and he's like, well, gee, what if I preached so that it didn't suck that bad? Like, how many people do you think would get out of bed on a Sunday morning because it doesn't suck that bad? You know, and he's like, and what if, like, the worship guy, you know, it didn't suck that bad? You know, and he's like, how many people get up out of, out of bed on a Sunday morning excited to go to church because it doesn't suck that bad? And it was just, like, really funny kind of taking that logic and moving it down the chain. Well, on the drive back from Portland, I started thinking about it. And I was thinking if that logic holds true for teaching gifts or leading people in worship gifts, it holds true for how you greet people at the door gifts and how you usher gifts and how you set up gifts and how you work with kids gifts and how you tithe gifts. And all of a sudden, I began to realize, man, we could take the mirror and turn it on the whole church and put me in that mix, the whole church, and go... The way you're exercising your gift, the way you're playing your instrument, would it be described by, it doesn't suck that bad? What about the way you sit next to somebody in church? Are you good at being a sitter next to her in church? (laughs) Is it worth somebody getting out of bed to come sit next to you because you're warm and friendly? What about your smile on your face in the hall gift? Is, it, is the way you present yourself here worth somebody getting out of bed for on a Sunday morning? Are you exercising your gifts in the context of the church to the best of your ability? Are we all trying our best so that when you, when you put all those things together, like an orchestra, something beautiful happens? Or is it one soloist and the rest is just screeching because they don't feel like it really matters? Because they don't understand that church is dynamic art. It's participatory art. It's not a fixed thing that's, that's observable, and you, it evokes something or it either looks beautiful or we critique it and say, what does it mean to me? The, the art form of church is not passive art. It's dynamic art. Do you know um, the word hospitality is a combination of two Greek words? Love and stranger. It's kind of cool, huh? So I want to do something we've never done. I want you to stand up right now and love on a stranger and do the whole church meet and greet thing for the first time in your life like you're being graded on it. Okay? God is watching whether you're a good church mixed greeter person or not. But I just, let's take four minutes and just be a community for four minutes. Go for it. All right, we'll go ahead and Go ahead and cut you off while you're still talking. The goal would be that after church, you'd still have like a little bit of gas in the tank to to still talk to somebody um, after the service and maybe go to lunch. I think the greatest thing you can do with somebody from church is go to to lunch. Um, Some of the greatest relationships at church that I've ever had have been just grabbing somebody and saying, let's go grab lunch. Um, Mexican food works really well because you get the chips beforehand. It like breaks the ice. It's just (laughs) advice. Um, Let's go ahead and start shutting this down here. Let me me read from 1 Corinthians. This is chapter 12. Um, Paul just, whenever he wanted to talk about the church's body, he would always do it in chapter 12. (laughs) It's a joke because he didn't put the chapters in, but... It wasn't a, it was like a seminary joke. It's, it's, like, it's like dork. You know, my kids make fun of my humor, and, and I think the older I get, the church is going to start making fun of my humor, too. It's like, it's a weird relationship. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has arranged, this is verse 18. God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Imagine an orchestra conductor at a rehearsal moving, or a choir conductor moving around the parts exactly like he or she wants them to be moved around. What is 
guiding the artist when, when they're moving around the parts and assigning parts. Well, God's the artist here, but what's motivating God as the artist, like what motivates all artists, is this is the best way. This is how it works best. This is how it, the magic comes about. This is where it just sings. So let me arrange the parts because I know what's best. And so God, according to Paul, arranges the parts just as he wants them to be. If they were all one part, if they were all cellists, there wouldn't be a body, there wouldn't be an orchestra. And as it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now let's continue on down to verse 24. It says this, But God has combined the members of the body, and that's literally the metaphor for the church. So God has combined us as, as members of the church and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body. But, it, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Do you, do you ever notice that some of the gifts that are less visible, the people that do that are just more likable? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I, I feel this way because I'm one of those people that's like liked or hated, right? Never ignored, just liked or hated. But, but then I see other people that have more behind-the-scenes gifts, and I'm like, wow, everybody likes them. And I think there's something real going on here. Like, God gives honor and, and bestows different things and humility, which he can always bless, and, and other things like that to less visible kinds of things. And, and he's saying, man, I'm, I'm even in this thing out. Um, and I think he, dis- he disciplined Peter of all the apostles more than anybody else. Peter's this like crazy go-getter agro leader and, and Jesus is just like embarrassing him in front of his friends all the time. Like, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you idiot. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, have, in thing, you have in mind the things of people, not of God. Like, but, but he's always disciplining them and, and he's always honoring Nathaniel and, and God balances this thing out even though there's just these crazy different gifts. There's something crazy going on here. I have four different kids. I naturally give praise and affection and direction and discipline in a very thought-through, unique way to try and keep the balance so that my kids all feel like I love them equally. It's different. But the end goal that I've got is that there's unity in my family. Does that make sense? That's what God's doing with this, this thing he's called the church. We're all equal. God's seen to it. God sees to it. And then listen to this last line here. Because we, we're equal, there's, there's going to be an equal concern for each other. We should love and be concerned for each other equally. Verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We're honoring artists today. If you're not an artist, guess what? Rejoice. Along with those that have artistic gifts. Okay? We'll get to the engineering Sunday soon. Okay? (laughs) If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. This dollar for change program, you know the coolest thing about it? It's not the, all the money that's coming in and it gets get redistributed. It's that it's changing the paradigm of us in this church. Because that money we take in, the dollar bills that we take in, gets given to somebody in the church. They go bless somebody in the community with it. What's changing is that now whenever somebody's sitting next to someone in Starbucks, they're kind of listening a little different. Or when they hear somebody that's really struggling, like a light, bell, uh, light bulb goes off. Light bell, that's mixed metaphor light bulb goes off. The coolest thing about it is that we're listening different. It's really cool. So Paul says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Were any of you old enough like me to remember the movie Backdraft with Kurt Russell? Remember that? It's a great movie. And it's this fire unit. 
and fire units are cool that way. And, and towards the end, like, Kurt Russell's holding on to a guy. And, like, the guy's slipping, and there's just a big inferno beneath him. Um, you know, and, and it's smoke and soot and sweat, which was probably mist sprayed on his face. But that's okay. Like, he's a good actor. I'm with it. And, and he's holding on, and the gloves slipping. You guys remember this? And what does he say? If you go, we go. I almost had that tattooed on myself. <laughs> like when I became a pastor, I was just, I was going to be like, it's going to be a cool pastor tattoo. Um, really big maybe. Like if you go, we go. But that, that was, there's this ethic, this fireman's ethic of like, I'm not going to drop you to save myself. If you go, um, we go. If, if you die, we die. Like, I'm not going to choose myself over you. It's us. And I remember watching that, and it was partly because Kurt Russell was doing this quiver thing with his face, and his cheek was shaking. You guys remember that? And I, was, I think that was part of what really just sucked me in, but I just remember thinking, like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. There's something so, like, guy about that, you know? And, and uh, I think what's at the heart of that is why we all resonate with this idea of barn raising. You know what I mean by barn raising? You know, it's like you watch a movie or you hear a story of back in the olden days on a Sunday after church, they would just all go to somebody's house. And, it, and they would bring the lumber and they'd bring their tools and the whole community would literally raise a barn that would have taken a guy a year and literally would have broken his back or bankrupted him or whatever and together they all show up and they make just like just do it instantaneously and boom there it is and they all collaborate and then the next week or a month later it's over here and they raise a barn and we we kind of know what that is and there's something so beautiful about that because it's that same you go we go attitude we, we know in our hearts there's something crazy good about that and that's what it's saying here and Paul's like man this is participation art. The church is going to be a light on a hill. If people are going to know that you're Christians, they're going to know it by your love. Jesus even said that. Man, the people that aren't a part of your church are going to know that you're real by, by how evocative your love for each other is. How emotional that makes them. How, how responsive it is when they see or witness or hear about your love for each other. Your Artwork is your witness. And your artwork requires participation. We're a body of many parts. We get to, we have the grace to play in this orchestra and delight in being a part of God's plan. It's a good plan that he created, that he's just intricately involved in and moving the pieces around. And when we join that, we can get so excited about what's gonna come. And we trust it, and we obey even in the hard times. Let me just say a couple things, and then um, the Justice Conference is gonna be in Portland next year. Um, it's already kind of dialing out. It's gonna be super cool. Um, nobody knows that yet. The reason I'm telling you that uh, is Micah, at this year's Justice Conference, did a spoken word piece on this idea of, a, of, of many parts. So this morning I came up to him and I was like, hey, Micah, are you up for a challenge? Uh, and I said, hey, can you, it's been a month, five weeks, something like that. Can you do that piece this morning? You know, and can you imagine how hard it would be to something you've memorized, to kind of dig it up and perform it again, like with no warning? Um, so Micah said no. No, I'm just kidding. He said yes. Um, so I want to invite Micah up. And what I want to just say real quickly is after Micah, we're going to take the offering, put lots of money in there. Um, more important than that, put yourself in there. This church is something that can be beautiful if we all choose to participate. We have some big challenges as a church. We have some implementation gaps to plow through, like we're running through sand. We have people that we can invite, people that we can embrace and pull into this, this community. Um, put yourself in the offering bucket. 
if not for me or for Antioch, put yourself in there as an act of worship for God, saying, God, your artwork is something I'm going to be a part of. I want you as my director, and I want to play my instrument, and I want to do it the best that I can. So the offering is going to be after Micah. You can fill these things out. And with that, I'll just invite Micah up. Would you guys give him a warm welcome? And uh, here we go. Yeah, I heard what he said, and true. It's really sad, but what can I do? The answer is the question. What can you do? Well, no skill is insignificant. Whether you wax eloquent or wax cars, wax on for the cause. The good Lord has given many gifts. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? If the whole body were an eye, how would we hear? And if we were all ears, how would we smell? So don't tell me what you're not or don't got or can't do. But serve God just how he made you. If you've got a green thumb, then grow a lemon tree and take a lemonade stand. All proceeds go to the refreshment of man. I like to write poems. Maybe you could write grants. And you could write songs. Maybe you should start a band. And you could play the drums. And you could play guitar. And y'all could make a record that'll cut you to the heart. And you know how to talk. Maybe you could give a speech and educate the people about the evil till they weep. You like to organize. You got a bunch of friends. So y'all should get together and put on a conference. I heard about a band that could play for really cheap. I got another homie who could help us with the drinks. And then I know a speaker, man, that boy could really preach. Invite a lot of people who could do a lot of things and once they get to talking about a bam bada bing the movement really moving and the people wondering what can I do I say you tell me <laughs> <laughs>